Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Hey, this is DeRay. And welcome to Pod Save the People. In this episode, it's me, Sam Kindiar, as usual, talking about the news that you don't know. We were not together this week, so we uh, put in our pieces of news separately. We're still here. And then I have this really fascinating conversation with Michael Levine and Makita Mays-Green from Nickelodeon, and they talk about Nickelodeon's education program, what they're doing around race and justice, screen time, learned a ton, had no clue that like this much went into it. I mean, what did I think? I don't know. But I learned. Hope you can learn too. Here we go. My advice for this week is to make friends, you know? Like, I feel like as you get older, your like circle sort of closes a little bit. Like, you have your friends, they are your friends. You meet new people, but like uh, you sort of put your energy where your energy's been. And I've been so blessed to like, I've gone on just lunches, coffee with people I meet just to like learn more about them and to actually know them so we can really be friends. And every single time it's been beautiful. So I'd say like be proactive on making friends, whether it's Zoom, the phone, FaceTime, like reach out to people, grow your circle. Don't let you growing older be an excuse for you uh, to not let people in your life or not to be in the lives of other people. Let's go. So my news this week is about the myth that prisons help out the economy. So most prisons and jails get built today if they're going to get built. And a lot of the older ones have been built in suburbs and rural communities, partly because that's where the land was. So if you're trying to build a 2,000 bed facility, 5,000 bed facility, normally there's just not enough space in a city today to build it. So a lot of towns were promised that this would be the real economic boon. So like it's a town of a thousand people. They get a facility that needs 500 people to run it. You know, it's a jail, which means that it's the government, which means that they will definitely pay you. There'll be jobs. There'll be like this whole promise. And this article that is put out by the Marshall Project is called Small Towns Used to See Prisons as a Boon. Now many don't want them. And it specifically focuses on Nebraska and how in Nebraska there were towns that were promised that like these prisons would really be a boom. And like they actually just turned out to not be. So they talk about uh, the mayor of Ashland, Nebraska. He was approached last year about the possibility of hosting in prison. And he's like, you know what? People don't want that here. His town has about 2,500 people in it. And the people in his town want to work in the cities, in Omaha and Lincoln. They actually don't want to have a facility in the town that relies on local labor because they don't want to work there. And what we find when the wash happens, when it all comes down, is that like the data, the research actually shows is that the numbers don't pan out that these prisons and communities actually don't lead to an increased sustained economy, don't lead to economic growth. And you find that like the government was lying to people. The government was like seducing people to support the expansion of prisons in a self-interested way. This idea that like they'd actually benefit from it. And guess what? They didn't. That like now they got a jail in their backyard. They didn't want the jail there. It is people coming in who don't live in their their tiny community. Now it's people driving in from other places to work there because somebody has to work there now they built it. it. This to me was just a reminder that uh, we don't need to build new facilities to lock people up. That most of the reasons that people give you for why it might be a good thing are either scams or just, just not very good reasons. And the third is that, you know, you see the long-term effect of these things. You, you see the town that thought they were going to win by locking people up. They didn't. And now they're stuck with it. And it's like, that's actually what you get. That like, you should have asked the questions on the front end. And I'm happy now that people are being honest about it, being like, you know what? I don't want to. And in Nebraska, you know, the case study here is that they want to build a new facility, which they don't need. And they are putting bids out and people aren't bidding on it. Cities don't want it. Towns don't want it. And it's like, yes, we actually just should not be building new cages for people. That should not be the model of the way we think about rehabilitation and certainly not the model of the way that we think about accountability. The article is really fascinating because it just goes through and reminds us all, and even the Republicans have to contend with it, especially when you think about across the country, we're thankfully incarcerating less people. And even in places where incarceration is increasing, it's not clear that we need to build all these new facilities. We also don't need to have people on probation and parole paying for their anklets and stuff like that is... That's a whole nother crisis and a whole nother nightmare that we also don't need. But this is my news. I learned a lot. Y'all, my news comes from People magazine this week. It's extraordinary, actually. It's about a group of black women, a collective of black women, really, 
who founded an organization called She Will Rise. And what it is is an initiative led by these black women, and they want to make sure that President Biden keeps his promise to appoint a black woman for Supreme Court justice um, when the next chance arises. And it looks like that next chance would be with the imminent stepping down or retiring, really, it's retirement, for Justice Stephen Breyer. It's speculated that he will retire from the Supreme Court or is the next in line to retire Um, And that would make a position open. And then we would obviously have to hold President Joe Biden accountable for appointing a black woman. So She Will Rise is this incredible organization that, thank goodness, we have an organization like this that's actually naming uh, what is happening and also holding Joe Biden and the administration, quite frankly, um, accountable for making sure that a black woman is appointed to the Supreme Court. They've started a petition. They have a massive social media presence. Um, It's really just the beginning for this organization. The founders really want to lift up other black women so the path to the Supreme Court and other judicial appointments becomes easier. Um, As we know, (laughs) President Trump set records when it came to judicial appointments. Um, And so now we are really having to play catch up with this administration. Um, There have been some really great appointments made. And so we want to continue with that. And we really want to center black women in those appointments. Obviously, that's my belief, but also the belief of She Will Rise. Um, She Will Rise is founded by Sabria Williams, April Rain, Brandi Collender, and my dear sister friend, who I've admired since I was in the ninth grade, Kimberly Tignor. Kim is actually executive director for the Institute of Intellectual Property and Social Justice. All of these women, you probably know their names, but they are accomplished and brilliant in their own right. So I was really impressed with what Kim said here in this article. She said, how is it that one of the most engaged voting demographics, being black women, is still underrepresented in every branch of the government? She went on to say that this must be because of the intersection of sexism and racism just hits different. It hits harder. It hits uglier and from all angles. So Kim, April, Sabria, Brandy, these incredible women really hope that someday the Supreme Court um, will, you know, obviously reflect back to the, the voting demographics when it comes to black women, be representative of black women on the Supreme Court, but also just, you know, reflect widely the demographics of the United States. So I just found this to be so compelling. I'm going to follow She Will Rise. I hope you all follow She Will Rise and continue to support this organization and others who are trying to get black women and progressive women, humans, and otherwise into these judicial appointments. Um, There were two big things that occurred to me after reading this article. The first one is, you know, when black women put their mind to something, (laughs) we get things done. And so I'm inspired that this group of sisters have decided to take this matter into their hands, that they are working to help people understand who these potential nominees are, that they're putting pressure on the democratic machine. Like this is the kind of forward thinking that needs to be happening regularly that I don't think we've seen from the democratic party. The second thing about this article is it pissed me off that um, we are literally in a situation where Justice Breyer is not willing to retire so that we can ensure a progressive voice on the Supreme Court. I don't know, if you haven't been paying attention to the Supreme Court politics over the last five to seven years, then you have to be living under a rock. And we have a chance to, we lost a chance with Justice Ginsburg, who we all love, and hindsight is twenty twenty. But to make the same mistake twice and to watch this white man hold on to power instead of sharing power, instead of taking a long-term approach um, for the betterment of our country and our society really just makes my blood boil. My hope, my prayer is that he will do the right thing for America, that the Democratic Party will do the right thing and lean on him so that we can secure that seat um, for a progressive Democrat on the court. It is one of our only chances. Don't go anywhere. More Politics the People is coming. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened, but soon a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, 
Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. Hey, it's Sam. And for my news today, I want to talk about the poverty rate. Because what we have seen, according to a new study from the Urban Institute, is the single largest reduction in the U.S. poverty rate in recorded history. A 45% decrease in the poverty rate relative to what it was in 2018. So how do we get here in the middle of a pandemic? Because I know you're thinking, wait, didn't everything just get worse in the middle of a pandemic? Yes, but what this data shows, what this study shows from the Urban Institute is that existing government programs to provide relief to people in poverty, programs like food stamps and unemployment assistance, combined with new pandemic-related emergency measures and relief programs like the stimulus checks, the expansions and additional money tied to unemployment assistance, expansions in the safety net um, that were passed during COVID, because of the combined effect of those government programs, we've actually seen a reduction in the poverty rate in the middle of the pandemic. And the reduction is stark, so let me dive into the numbers here. First of all, these programs weren't cheap. We're talking about about a trillion dollars being spent it's like, what do we get for a trillion dollars? Well, it turns out a lot, because for a trillion dollars, you could end poverty in the United States, it seems. Because let's dive into how much of an effect these programs had. Now, poverty rate without the programs, they project. If we didn't have any of these relief programs, any of the government benefits, what would happen to people in the middle of the pandemic? Well, the poverty rate would be projected to be 23% nationwide. What is it now? 7.7%. That's 67% fewer people in poverty relative to what otherwise would have been the case without these government benefits. Now let's break that down by race and let's break that down by place because the results are stark. Now, for white people, 16% were projected to be in poverty without government programs. If, there were, if they didn't exist, no government benefits, no government assistance. You know, you hear people say they don't want government help, shouldn't have handouts, yada, yada. Without any of that, for white people, the poverty rate would be 16%. What is it now? 5.8%. Okay, so those programs clearly helped. 63% fewer white people are in poverty today because of those programs. Now let's disaggregate this further. For black people, 36% poverty rate without any of these programs projected. 36%. With these programs in place, with the stimulus checks, with the government benefits, expansion of unemployment insurance, expansion of food stamps, support. The poverty rate is now 74% lower than it otherwise would be for black people. So instead of 36%, 9.2%. Now, that's still higher than the 5.8% for white people. So the inequality remains. 
the absolute level of poverty is dropping across the board, the inequality still remains, so important note. But let's look at what this actually means in real terms. So there are about 45 million black people in America. 10.5 million are not in poverty today who would be in poverty today if not for these government interventions. Policy matters, folks. Investments matter. Got to invest in communities. Let's look at Latinos. Poverty rate projected without the programs currently would be 37%. Instead, 11.8%. The 68% fewer people in poverty, Latinos in poverty, because of these programs. Asian Pacific Islanders, 23% would be in poverty without these programs, 10.8% instead because of these programs. 54% fewer people in poverty who are Asian Pacific Islander. So across the board, huge reductions in the poverty rate, especially for kids, especially for kids, relative to what it otherwise would have been, there are 81% fewer kids in poverty today. That's wild. That means we're on the road to ending child poverty. But it'll only happen if we continue to build upon and expand upon the investments that have started to make a difference in millions of people's lives. Now, one of the things that was important about this study is they pointed out that among the various investments, now there are a lot of things, both existing programs that were in effect for folks who fall under the poverty line uh, and programs that are new, passed under the pandemic. And what they find is among these programs, they're all important, they all play a role in bringing those numbers down. But they said that the federal stimulus checks have a larger anti-poverty impact than any of the other programs. If all other programs were in place but the stimulus checks had not been paid, the Urban Institute projects 12.4 million more people would be in poverty in 2021. 12.4 million more people without the stimulus checks. Now, food stamps, SNAP, 7.9 million people are kept out of poverty because of that. And unemployment insurance benefits lower the number of people in poverty by 6.7 million. Okay, so those are three programs. 12.4 million impacted, kept out of poverty through the stimulus checks, 7.9 million people through the food stamps, and 6.7 million people through the unemployment insurance benefits. There's your impact. Now, a lot of these programs are set to expire. A lot of the extra benefits that were passed during the pandemic are set to expire. These are things that have had to be fought for, as you know. We've had to fight for every round of these stimulus checks, for every round of everything, now fighting around the eviction moratorium being extended. So keep up the fight, because literally these programs are putting us on a path to ending poverty in the United States, but it will only happen if we not only maintain these investments, but expand them. Now let's get to work. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere, there's more to come. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now, there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet, with faster speeds rolling out every day, and internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. So while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement, while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next-generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. At Consumer Cellular, you get the same exact coverage as the largest carriers, but for up to half the cost. Same thing, up to half the cost. Up to half the cost for the same thing. 50% the money for 100% the same thing. I hope I'm making myself clear. Consumer Cellular. When freedom calls, we're here to answer. Call us at 1-888-FREEDOM. Half the cost savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single-line 5 gigabyte data plan with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single-line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plan offered by T-Mobile and Verizon May 2023. My news this week comes out of Vox, and it's an article about how the police can get your data even if you aren't suspected of a crime. Now, what you might ordinarily expect that in criminal investigations, as long as law enforcement has a subpoena or a court order or, an awar or a warrant, they can get your data from a data company or a social media company or a mobile company. And those are the, the rules, right, that, that if they secure one of those things, that they can get your data. Unless there is um, cause to believe that there's imminent danger, then they can move a little bit differently. However, um, it turns out that even if you are not under criminal investigation, there are a number of other ways that law enforcement can get your data. In fact, as we look at the FBI 
building cases against the January 6th insurrectionists, the FBI was able to obtain internal records from a variety of social media platforms and mobile carriers to build their cases. And part of the reason why is because in these privacy policies that none of us read, you know what I mean? The new privacy policy comes up, you scroll all the way down and click I accept without ever reading it. In fact, one of the things that it says in those privacy policies is that your data can be shared with law enforcement. There's a broad rule called the Electronic Communications Privacy Act that governs the sharing of electronic data, but it was enacted in 1986 and it needs some updating. And so if any company collects and stores your data, the chances are the police can get their hands on it. The police are using, they, they are using a bunch of different tactics to get your data. So first of all, they can purchase location data from data brokers. Um, it's called geofencing. And they'll ask for all of the devices in a certain area at a certain time. They can purchase facial recognition data from Clearview AI, even though there's lots of evidence that facial recognition technology is flawed. They can do keyword warrants where they ask for all of the IP addresses that search for a certain keyword. And they use tactics like uh, reverse search warrants to grab data from groups of people, large groups of people, and they hope to find a suspect among them. And so this is pretty concerning because you may never even know that law enforcement has your data. And in a worst case scenario, sometimes um, they will arrest and target innocent people because they've been swept up in these kind of mass surveillance techniques. Um, some of the social media companies and other companies produce transparency reports with details about how many requests they get from law enforcement and government, what types of requests, and how many are fulfilled. But for the most part, once you click accept on those privacy policies, your data can end up in the hands of police, again, without you ever even knowing about it, and in some cases, with the police misusing your data. So I brought this to the pod because I just think we need to be aware of this. We need to think deeply about how we use our technology and how we work to maintain our privacy. And I thought not a lot of people were paying attention to this, and so I hope folks will take this into consideration. And to Kai's news, I feel like I'm always learning something new. I, I, I definitely knew that the police had broad power to get access to your information. That is wild. These sort of fall in the legal gray area. I didn't know that at all. Like the idea of, you know, the article talks about this notion of a reverse search warrant, like not starting out with the suspect, but starting out with a broad idea and then backing into a suspect. Wild. I didn't know that. And I'd heard about Clearview. Clearview is the company that does facial recognition. I, did, I think I just like, it didn't click to me that the police department's actually buying this information. That police departments are actually buying location data in mass. They are buying facial recognition data and then using it in custom programs as a way to get around having to go through search warrants and things like that. That is really special. Now, what this article also reminded me is that we need to update the privacy laws. That most of the laws around the internet and in our privacy were written in the 80s, updated a little bit, but don't reflect just the sheer pace with which, you know, the Twitters and Snapchats, Instagram, like the pace at which all of this has changed, our laws need to reflect that because uh, the police have an incredible power to halt people's lives, to stop people's lives, to incarcerate people. And the public has very little recourse when they start moving. You know, Kaya, thanks for bringing this to the pod because I mean, this is a subject that just keeps, it seems, getting worse and worse and worse over time when it comes to police surveillance. They get access to all of this technology. Uh, and you know what this article goes into is the ways in which they can purchase data on people, just commercially available data, um, not people who've been you know, suspected of crimes, people who they're actually investigating, just like treasure troves of information about millions of people who might be loosely connected with somebody who they might be interested in investigating, in other cases might have just been in the same location at the same time. So you know, we're talking about location data, um, where people have been, when they were there, information on who they called, how long they talked to them, information on, uh, you know, talk about license plate readers. So basically wherever you are, uh, they tag you where you are as you're driving past particular locations. And then you have Clearview AI, which I know we talked about in previous episodes, 
Um, but there's a facial recognition company that sells law enforcement access to its facial recognition database, which is just millions and millions of photos and images of people that are then able to be tracked by law enforcement um, and scanned and potentially, and there's a, there's a huge fear about this, used in concert with technologies like body cameras uh, to essentially do the whole RoboCop thing where you can look around, scan a, an environment with a body camera, immediately recognize using facial recognition technology who everybody is, pull up you know, track records, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and basically hunt people down, which is a nightmare, frightening scenario. So all of those things are being experimented, are being developed, are technologies the police have access to, have all of these resources in their budgets to purchase and use, uh, and things that the public really, like, we don't have any of this. You know, like, we don't, we talk about tracking police violence. We're largely dependent on information that the police report or information that the media reports, in part from information they receive from the police. Like, we don't have access to all of the security cam footage for every police shooting. We don't have access to all of the facial recognition databases to identify all of the officers in particular places in particular times who might be using predictive tools then involved in misconduct. I mean, there's a huge asymmetry in information, in data, in resources. And so that's sort of what we're seeing here is, this is hugely problematic that this is in the hands of the police, the ways that they're using this technology. And we're also completely outgunned in terms of our ability to fight back. So, uh, you know, that's why we need legislation. We need the government to step in uh, to restrict and prohibit the police from purchasing these technologies, from purchasing these data sets. Uh, and that's where the fight uh, is headed. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned, there's more to come. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. And now my conversation with Michael Levine and Makita Mays-Green from Nickelodeon. I learned a ton from them. It made me appreciate how intentional the programming is for young adults and kids. And I hope that you learned something too. Here we go. Makita and Dr. Levine, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Pleasure to be here. Can you, I'm excited for this conversation. Can you all start by telling us how you got to Nickelodeon? or Noggin, or the Nick world? So I am a recent newcomer to Nickelodeon and to its preschool learning service, Noggin. Been with the company just over a year. Um, my background is in child development research, public policy, and philanthropy. Um, some of your listeners might know of some of the work that I have done previously at Sesame Street, with Sesame Workshop, where I oversaw uh, learning and knowledge development there. But I've kind of been in the educational media and social impact space for a long period of time and uh, knew Makita. And she's one of the people who've recruited me over to Nickelodeon and she can tell you her own story. I'm so excited to have you over here, Michael. It's such a pleasure to be working with you in this capacity at Noggin. Um, Duray, I actually began my career over at Sesame Street, which is where I had the opportunity to really cut my teeth when it comes to the work around creating content and conducting research as it pertains to children and their most pressing needs. And so I was director of education and research there before coming over to Nickelodeon, where I now have been for nine years leading the digital consumer insights team and working very closely with Michael and a bunch of other folks who are extremely dedicated to this space. Noggin, like a lot of other educational media platforms and companies have been growing just a tremendous amount so it's been just a really interesting moment to respond to the COVID crisis as well as, you know, the crisis of racial and, you know, injustice, the second pandemic that's roiling our, our country. And putting together a team kind of remotely has been both exciting and, and, and daunting. And 
you know, I'm sure we'll use this conversation to tell you about some of the ways in which we've been responding, but it has been both unusual and a privilege to try to do this work during these extraordinary times. What shows are on Noggin that we might know? <laughs> we have a bunch. I think you would know Paw Patrol very well. I think you'd be familiar with some of our characters on Bubble Guppies. One of the nice things about the content on Noggin is that it is um, extremely inclusive when it comes to characters as well as storylines. And so, um, Duray, in addition to being a media professional, I'm also a mom of three, and my youngest daughter is six years old, a huge fan of Noggin. So she likes to keep me informed, although, you know, mom, I'm helping you work. I'm like, yes, I actually worked on that all day today journey. So <laughs> yeah. I love it. So Paw Patrol. Dora the Explorer. Dora. Team Umizumi. Mm-hmm. New shows like Santiago of the Seas. So these are the longer form okay. episodic content. Like if you want to watch and sit back like 11 minutes or 22 minutes, the kind of stuff that most kids and moms and dads would think about as educational television. But what Noggin is really doing with that as part of our DNA is creating our own original content and our own interactive content. So we would take a Dora the Explorer or a Paw Patrol and maybe combine the pups with Dora in an interactive game that's teaching kids math and literacy skills, as well as what we refer to in Noggin as big heart skills. So, and then we're also creating big heart skills. Big heart skills. Yeah. So we're very much engaged in thinking about social emotional development at Noggin. This is a moment, of course, for all families who have been isolated in the last year and want their kids to go on virtual play dates with their sidekicks and their friends. Um, But it's also a time to kind of introduce ways in which kids can get off the screen so that when they go back to childcare and preschool and elementary school, they'll have those big heart skills, not only to empathize or to resolve a dispute productively, but also we've, you know, considered big heart skills to include the generosity the fairness and the equality gene as well, so that we've uniquely, I think, added a social justice dimension to our SEL, social and emotional development dimension. My gut tells me that people either watch the same shows over and over, or they just like were in front of TVs more. That is true, right? It varies. So we can tell you, like, Nikita looks as part of her job at all these different trends, the transition from watching longer form episodes. It used to be a half hour, but it was really, you know, 22 minutes down to how much time are they spending on a game or how much time are they spending on an ebook? When it comes to our audience in particular with younger kids, we see that they love agency and they love the power to choose the power of choice. And that's one of the things that I think the noggin experience affords them the opportunity to select the content that is most appealing to them to choose active time to spend with their friends. You know, we've often talked about our Nickelodeon or Nick Jr. shows and noggin content is like characters, but kids really consider them their friends. And so they're able to connect with their friends either via a lean back experience or a lean in experience where they can actually engage. But one of the things that we often talk about is the power of those characters, the power of those friends, being able to leverage those parasocial relationships, because we know that kids learn best when they have a trusted guide. And we have plenty of those trusted guides in the context of our Noggin ecosystem. That term that she just used, Ray, parasocial relationship, is one that's grounded in a deep set of research. So we've done research when I was at Sesame Workshop, but also at Nickelodeon and Noggin that shows that the children actually will be encouraged to do something that is pro-social or pro-health if the characters do it. Like if Elmo or Dora were to tell you to try broccoli, you'd be so much more likely to eat healthy than if a character you didn't recognize asked you to do that. In fact, at Sesame, we found that you could ask a kid to choose between broccoli and chocolate. And if Elmo preferred broccoli, the kid preferred broccoli. That is until they actually ate it. And that's a trusted guide. Yeah, trusted guide, a parasocial relationship, a role model in a way is really what our characters mean to kids. Like every kid you ask has a favorite character of some sort or a favorite passion of some sort. And 
increasingly in the United States and around the world, these characters are animated characters or live action characters, but more and more animated characters of the kind that you will typically see on our platforms. How do you do the age ranges, right? Like, are you, is it like, we need a couple of shows for like, I don't know, three to four year olds. And then we have a couple of shows for like six to 10. Six to 10 feels like a big range. Maybe that's not the right range. I don't know. What are the ranges? Or how do you think about ages when you think about this? There's two things here. There's what's developmentally appropriate in terms of the curriculum of the show. So at Noggin, which is, you know, unique, we have the Noggin Learning Framework, which looks at skills and knowledge across different kinds of domains, like math and literacy would be obvious, but big heart, social, emotional learning might be a little less obvious and healthy habits and executive functioning, sort of those brain skills. And then we look across knowledge domains. So across that big framework, we're plugging in what's appropriate for a kid to learn about social development, math, science, et cetera, against an age range. That's one. Makita can comment on in terms of engagement, you know, for decades, organizations like Nickelodeon have sort of been perfecting what's what, what's the profile of a four-year-old and what are they really going to engage with and really love. So there's a science also of engaging the child so that they will form that strong relationship with the character, whether it's curriculum-based or not. I think that really dovetails into the reason we do so much research because we want to make sure that we are always speaking to our audience and learning from them. You know, we can, I always say we can sit in a conference room or on Zoom all day and pontificate, you know, the the meaning of life and what we think will work for kids, but it's only when we put our content in front of them that we truly know how we are best reaching our audience and addressing their needs. And so we're looking at that, as Michael mentioned, from thinking about kids' chronological and developmental stages, but also more specifically honing in on what is appealing to them. And during this coronavirus pandemic, we've actually seen some of the older kids actually go back to content that is typically deemed to be more appealing for the younger kids. And we think that is attributed to the fact that they're looking for a sense of the familiar returning to that safe space. And so it's been a very interesting time to be a part of the media industry. What has changed since the protests? Or like, how are you talking about race? How are you thinking about race? How does Adora or how does a Paw Patrol you know, a show about the police. <laughs> how does how do these shows like set kids up to think about the world that they're in or like to think about inequity or to think about their own sort of role as people of color or white supremacy or like all of those things? What is your entrance to that? The coronavirus led to sort of a step back to see what could we do immediately around that public health emergency. But within a month, Makita and I were like, it's not just coronavirus like that we need to urgently respond to. And the interconnections between what the coronavirus was showing us in terms of the inequities that it was making so much more clear, you know, in our country, uh, led us to evolve the work that we're doing at Noggin in a response to both the racial inequalities and the racial injustice and the public health emergency, which, you know, hopefully we're finding our way out of now. But I don't think so entirely. So we had to face a number of important questions. One was, look, the kids were going to be on platforms. I mean, mom and dad needed something to help them out with their colleagues, their kids were their colleagues at home, DeRay. So, you know, were we going to be about like the consumption opportunity was right there. There was going to be more consumption, more business for us. All great, right? But we had to step back as a sort of a double bottom line company. That's why all of us came to Noggin. We had sort of a social purpose in mind. What was the purpose? What was the opportunity for transforming? Are we going to do it the same way and just sort of put a couple of bells and whistles around, you know, Paw Patrol and the other things that we had? Or were we going to go for some sort of a transformation? Were we going to go it alone? Or were we going to partner up with other kind of best in class organizations that really could help us? And were we going to base our work on growth marketing or we're going to base it on evidence about what the kids actually needed in response to these two pandemics? And I have to say that I'm so proud um, that, you know, we would, you know, go about expanding the right way. So the first thing we did was we made Noggin free. We made Noggin available to everybody for uh, a few months. Uh, We kind of paused selling and, uh, you know, obviously we were all for conscious capitalism, but we thought that it was a time to give Noggin away. We started up something called Noggin Cares, which is our company's 
commitment to giving Noggin away for free, actually, for as long as possible to all kids who are in need. So we created something with 30 different organizations, including Head Start and First Book and a number of different states. Um, we extended the learning, you know, with partners. We said that we own very valuable real estate and others right now are not able to reach large audiences. So we went over to NASA, to Alvin Ailey. We went over to the Met, which was shuttered. And we said, what can we do together to use your rich content, um, your multiracial content, your multidimensional content and feature it on Noggin? So we formed all these different you know, partnerships. And we also said to ourselves, kids should not be spending gobs more time on Noggin. So let's give them some other things to use Noggin as a catapult to whether it was learning in school. So we formed partnerships with charter school networks or designing and developing their own production. So we added art tools and music tools to the platform. We created a new podcast series to encourage active listening not just interacting and, and not focusing all the time. We recruited a youth worker to become our new head of um, a, a preschool variety show, sort of a virtual classroom modeled after the best quality preschools in the world. Um, so Noggin Knows was created. Um, and we also, for the first time, decided that we had to reach out to our parents. Um, we didn't know what they were thinking. What did they need? So we created with you know, leaders from research and pediatrics special shows like Navigating the New Normal. So the pandemics changed everything for us. And thank goodness in some respects it did because we were able to accelerate our progress through sort of a focused group uh, leadership activity so that Noggin is 100% different than it might have been. Yeah, and let us know too, like what um, what's hard about it? Or like, what do we know about, I, I assume that there must be a way that we talk about these issues with kids and like, you know, something that we probably don't know. One of the great things about working with this team, being a part of this rich organization is that we have always been committed to diversity, representation, um, equity, and inclusion. So, you know, we have a long history of making sure that we are doing our due diligence when it comes to understanding, acknowledging, um, and taking on the responsibility that we have as a media organization. And so going back to some of the racial justice work that Michael was talking about back in 2019, you know, a lot of folks talk about this period of racial reckoning as being something post-George Floyd, but back in 2019, we were in the field conducting a research project, which we call Shades of Us, and that involved conversations. It was a big in-depth study conducted over multiple phases um, of research, both quant and qual, in various markets throughout the country involving over 15,000 kids and families designed to help us really think about and understand more deeply how kids understand race and racial identity. We also looked at the impact of the media on their development. And so there's some really interesting insights, which I'm happy to share with you now. But I just wanted to point that out because the fact that our research shows the number one place kids learn stereotypes is in school. Number two is on TV and in movies. What an awesome opportunity and responsibility we have to make sure that we get it right, to make sure that we are putting forth empowering portrayals that allow all kids to see themselves in a positive light. It's an immense responsibility and one that we never have taken lightly. Imagine if kids were put in a position to be able to cast media content, who would they put in those roles? And you think about this intersectionality of race and gender, who would kids cast? And we found that in terms of the hero, Across all kids, the clear choice was casting a white boy, selected by 52% of all kids, compared to only 90% really? for Black boy and 12% for Hispanic and Asian boys. I mean, that's astounding, right? Because think back to what we were saying in terms of where kids are picking up messages about what resonates in their lives and who they are and how they see themselves reflected. When I mean, we often talk about the windows and the mirrors, the fact that kids don't necessarily see themselves as the hero is a problem. And so we are making a concerted effort to make sure that we are portraying diverse representations that showcase all kids as the hero. But I think more importantly, when you think about that work that's being done off the screen, from a social and emotional perspective, as Michael mentioned, we wanna make sure that we are also creating opportunities for kids to feel heroic in their own lives. 
Yeah, and so we're creating new content. And based on this research, we've reached out to, you know, a wide new, you know, community of creators of color. Uh, and some of your audience members might be familiar with the work of Chris Jackson, who's played um, many very important characters, including George Washington and Hamilton. And we approached him and a production studio, an animation studio called Lion Forge Animation with this idea that could we call out those heroes? Could we show kids what it means to be a real life hero and some of the ways in which different actions that don't seem so heroic, but really lead to social change might be something that they could really recognize from as young as three and four years old. So together with Chris and Lion Forge Animation, we created what's become a very popular series called Rhymes Through Times, which is airing both on Noggin and on Nick Jr. and has attracted you know, millions and millions of views. The conceit of the broadcast is that important historical figures, Ruby Bridges, Alvin Ailey, Catherine Dunham, other you know, very important African-American individuals, as well as other creators of color, uh, were kids once too. And to take a look at their lives, especially people like Ruby Bridges, who was just six years old when she stood up for justice, and be able to connect that to a play that the children could actually understand, that they could participate in with their favorite characters, might be a great way of you know, teaching kids the equivalent of history and civics. Some people who've kind of reviewed the series have referred to it as the schoolhouse rock of the 2020s. Um, so we really are thinking carefully about how to use representation for purpose. Makita, did you find anything else in that? Like, is there, you know, the idea that kids and, and how old were the kids in in that sort of survey who chose the white hero? So that that was with older kids, um, nine to twelve, because we wanted them to take the survey on their own. You know, mm. um, much much of the work that's done around representation in media is often based on content analyses, but we really feel that if we want to get at the heart of how kids see themselves, the best way to do that is to ask kids themselves. Yeah. What else, Did anything else come out of that survey that we should know? Well, I think, you know, when it comes to representation, we also found that Black children were more than more than twice as likely as white kids to be cast as poor. We found that Asian youth were um, typecast often as the smart kid or the nerd. And I think underscoring all of this is the perpetuation of stereotypes and what can we do as media slash content creators to dismantle them. There's a lot of work to be done. You know, I think about what I saw when I was a kid. One of the reasons I actually got into this industry, probably the main reason I got into this industry is because I was that child who was sitting at home in the chair, longing to see someone like myself, longing to know that the person on the other side of that screen saw me. I specifically remember hearing a show where they would recount different names and all I wanted, you know, I see this person, I see that person. And I just wanted them to say like, I see Makita, I see Makita, right? Because we know from research, um, specifically a research study that was done by Indiana University, the detrimental impact that it can have on one's self-esteem when you are misrepresented and underrepresented. And so this work, it, I consider it some of the most important work that I've ever done in my career. I'm extremely honored to partner with, with Michael and, and so many other leaders in this industry, um, specifically the teams at, at Noggin um, and Nickelodeon to make sure that we are getting the word out there and, and talking about ways in which we can make a brighter tomorrow for the kids of today. And Dre, the other thing that the research has been showing with younger kids, to your point, is that parents are not I don't want to blame parents. I mean, they've had so much on their plate, but the research that we've done shows that parents are not having difficult conversations about race early enough, that especially for white parents, there's an imperative to begin to engage. And, you know, honestly, um, the media industry, including ourselves, bear some of the responsibility in not, you know, giving parents these sorts of tools. So that's part of what, you know, Makita and her team and my team are doing right now. Makita, the, the racial justice guide that we're beginning to develop might be something that will be of interest to Duray's audience. It won't be out for several months, but the research that is guiding us around how can parents have the talk, Duray, in a safe zone where nobody's pointing fingers at each other, but where an honest and candid conversation you know, exists about what it means to be an upstander, you know, what it means to be an ally if you're 
white, what it means to, you know, have these really, really difficult conversations about policing and about typical scenarios that happen every day to kids of color. So, you know, Makita and team did a really interesting piece of research, which perhaps you can say a little bit about. I wanted to know how kids and parents talk about race and racism. And so we had eight scenarios that we put forth in front of kids between the ages of five and 10 years old and their parents to actually see what these conversations were like. And from a methodological standpoint, we conducted it over Zoom. Uh, We had our audio and video muted, and it is really moving to hear the results of that conversation. Um, You know, the fact that egalitarian language um, is used more by white families than Black families, right? This idea that um, my color doesn't matter. Um, Colorblind messages were more pervasive among white families um, as compared to Black families. But one thing we found is this universal truth, which is that parents, all parents, regardless of race, want to protect their children. For some, that protection is grounded in preserving their innocence. For others, it's grounded in preservation of life. And we want to make sure that we are doing our part to help equip parents with the tools to have those very difficult conversations. And that uh, leads into the guy that Michael was talking about. You know, it's, it's not easy for anyone. We recognize that. But if we can do anything to help facilitate the nature of those conversations and help parents guide their children and also be the guide for parents themselves, because we know that conversations necessarily weren't always had with the parents about race. And so they also need support. So the support mechanism is something that we're really trying to push forth in the next few months. What does that look like functionally? Like, I get it. And like, is there is there like a 10 minute thing message to parents? Like, how does that like, what does supporting parents look like? It's actually just as it sounds a a guide, right? So providing some specific scenarios to them. And these these scenarios, you want to be careful to point out, these are not scenarios that we've sat in a room made up. These are actually scenarios based on real life examples of things that parents across racial groups have experienced. There are scenarios such as um, being followed in the store, you know, a, a Black family being followed in the store by a security guard and asked to show proof of purchase while another white family is allowed to leave. We have scenarios based on kids of, of different racial ethnic groups slash segments, but um, that, that gives you one example. One, one I do want to mention, because this really hit home with me, is the example of um, Black hair products being locked up in a store, not even able to go and browse the shelf and pick one off uh, of the shelf to see whether or not it's something that might be useful to you or someone in your family. You know, when we put these examples in front of kids and families, some parents are saying like, hmm, that's odd. Like, does that really happen? You hear kids saying, that's weird, really? But then at the same time, you hear other parents saying, oh, yes, remember that happened at the store we went to last week, right? So this is grounded in reality. We also talk about, you know, in light of what's happening with uh, Stop AAPI Hate, we talk about um, incidents that kids and families have experienced related to that. We talk about language and discrimination that comes along with speaking different languages. It is profound in that there is a lot of pain associated with these incidents, but also we know that as a media organization, we have an opportunity to provide purpose in how we can move forward. And and that I think continues to be a driving force for us. So we're developing content that would be a supplement to the action guide. The content, for example, the Big Heart um, initiative would include month by month talking about issues and topics such as feelings and the importance of taking a walk in another person's shoes and the importance of resolving conflicts creatively or nonviolently, or the importance of when you see something is wrong, how not to bystand but how to upstand. So we're trying to give all of our kids and our kids are, they range from two to six mostly. There are some slightly older kids on our platform. So, and Nickelodeon clearly has, you know, children who are, you know, six to 10. Um, so Duray, we're really trying to give sort of tangible content with whether it's music or whether it's a video game, scenarios like the ones that Makita just shared from the research are things that we can model and show the kids in real time. How can people who are in, who who are listening to this and they're like, "Oh my goodness, this is amazing." How can they follow the work that y'all are doing? How do they stay involved if there are parents who want to get feedback or something? I don't know. Like how do people like stay in the loop with y'all because I didn't frankly, I didn't even know y'all existed. I didn't know they were like the people 
in the back room doing all the research on race and kids and Ed Noggin. I didn't know that. Um, how, how do people find you all? First of all, they can subscribe. It's a commercial free learning service that's grown quite a lot and it's going to be, you know, one of the in- industry leaders today. So noggin.com, uh, wait for the free trial that's coming up in a couple of weeks for 60 days and get your little ones and your friends involved in, in Noggin. So um, you can find Noggin on many, many different platforms. It's interactive in that sense. There are games and, you know, there's a mobile app that you can get on, you know, any app store. And then if you, you know, just want the lean back experience, you can uh, view, you know, Noggin on Roku and Amazon Prime and Apple TV. And so we're on all the platforms. And if you choose to subscribe on one and you want to be on the others, we'll give you the how to do that so that you can cross authenticate and all that stuff. So that's number one. We're on social media today too. Like they can follow us on Facebook. They can follow us on Instagram. We are, um, we have an incredible social team who's responsible for putting up posts to make sure that people know what we're doing at Noggin. Um, we're speaking to kids and families all of the time. So I think that's another another mechanism by which they can stay abreast of the great work that's happening. And anyone, any one of your listeners can be in touch with me directly. Michael.Levine at Nick.com. I answer all emails. There we go. Uh, there are two questions we ask everybody. The first is, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? My dad was a civil rights organizer. You know, growing up as a young person, our phones were tapped. And one of the most important things that, you know, he taught me was to say whatever you want to say in public and private, you act completely the same way. Full transparency in terms of your intentions. And the second thing that I learned from my mom, who is a clinician, was that you need to have a plan, but you need to be urgent. I guide my life in some ways, I think, in this podcast actually is one that I like to listen to because I plan my life around what I would call episodic serendipity. You get into a conversation with other folks with totally open mind and see where it goes. And I am a big believer in the cosmos, but in managing the cosmos for social purpose. I would have to say my also comes from my my dad. He's passed away in 2006, but he used to always tell me any job worth doing is worth doing well. I've always abided by that in everything, because if you're going to put forth the energy to engage in anything, you should give your best. And I try to teach my children that same value. I I bring that value to work with me every single day in all that I do, because if you're not going to give your best, if you're not seeking to make a meaningful difference, then why bother? Any job worth doing is worth doing well. The other piece is something actually um, I had the opportunity to hear directly from Oprah. And it was to never forget who you are, always be your authentic self. And authenticity is something that just runs through me. I, I, I work hard every day to show up as myself, whether it's going to be in a Zoom meeting or or giving a larger presentation um, somewhere or perhaps conducting research with kids and families, being able to show up as your authentic self is always really important because I want kids and families to know that in spite of everything that they may be enduring, you are enough, you matter. And you know when you go through life every day, do so with meaning and with a mission. I've, part of the reason I'm in children's media is because I always wanted to do mission-based work. And I really believe in following the mission. Um, I, I always say, follow the mission, not, not the money. Follow the mission, not money. Words to live by. Well, we appreciate you coming. We consider you friends of the pod and can't wait to have you back. Thank you so much. We'll love that. Thank you so much, Teray. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Pod Save the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by Brock Wilbur and mixed by Bill Lands. Our executive producers, Jessica Cordova-Kramer and myself. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Samuel Sinyangwe.
Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now, there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet, with faster speeds rolling out every day. And internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. So, while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement. While another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next-generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 